My name is Mish Robinson. I have worked in the classical and choral world for 20 years. First as an outreach manager, creating and delivering performing arts projects to the community, and latterly as a freelance choral conductor. Coming from a non-musical background, educated at a local comp, and unable to read music until I was 18, I struggled in the classical music world. From the minute I got to music college, there were rules, a language, and people I didn't understand. I very much felt like an imposter and essentially have been trying to make sure that doesn't happen to others ever since. I want to use this podcast to discover the real person behind the instrument, hearing their voice as we open out the conversation with those who may be considered the mavericks of the classical music industry. Those who haven't taken a traditional route, whatever that really means. I want to uncover the wonderful things that are now igniting this music world. For me, music is about the people. They are the conduits of this art form. They are the ones that have the ability to use music to tell stories and to touch the soul. Music's superpower. In this podcast, I find out what people think and how people really feel about the classical music world. Linton Stevens is becoming a household name in classical music circles. Amongst other things, a bassoonist for Chinake and the Aurora Quartet, chair of the Musicians' Union Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Committee, broadcaster, known for BBC Radio 3's Classical Fix, illustrator and speaker of his own mind. We dive deep on the problematic term of success and the importance of humanity in music, amongst other things. Linton was a pleasure to chat to, and I'm grateful at his openness about his own motivators and experiences. We put the classical music world to rights. So today I am joined by Linton Stevens, who is sat in his flat in London, and uh, I am here in the studio. So uh, by the powers of technology, I am delighted to welcome you today, Linton. Thanks for having me, Mish. So full disclosure, I do know Linton, although we have just worked out that uh, we haven't seen each other since 2009. I think that's right, isn't it? Yeah, long time, a long time. It's worth pointing out that um, I worked at the RNCM whilst uh, Linton was a student there. Um, So uh, not quite the same age, but, you know, in spirit. (laughs) Only a couple of years apart. (laughs) Only a couple of years. Same generation, let's say. Okay, good. I like that. (laughs) Um, Right. So, Linton, um, I think we're going to have lots to talk about today. So uh, let's crack on. First of all, tell me, how did you get into music? What floated your boat about music when you were younger? Well, I I guess I had a bit of an odd route into music. So I... uh... I'll give you the full, the, the full, I'll give you the long version. So uh, basically I started playing music when I was eight years old. Uh, the music service came into school, did one of those pitch tests and like the top scorers were chosen and asked if they wanted to play an instrument. I picked the oboe, um, played for maybe two or three years and then quit. And I quit, I kind of cut my nose off to spite my face because I'd always wanted to play the bassoon and they wouldn't let me because I was too small. 
So, uh, and I was. How a, had you heard? Sorry to interrupt. How had you heard about the bassoon? Because oh, it's not a usual instrument. I was a bit of a, a geeky child, so I had this thing, and I did it with a few things. But when I liked something, I fixated on it, and I obsessed about it, and I would kind of research it. So I found out about the bassoon basically. So I used to go down to the library once I started playing the oboe and read these books about orchestral instruments and saw a picture of the bassoon had no idea what it sounded like and just thought it looks like a massive chimney I want to have a crack at that um and they just kept telling me that I was too small so I quit the oboe because I was a pretty decent oboist for a a kid back then um so I quit the oboe to kind of spite them and then uh when I was about 17 the opportunity or maybe 16 16 17 anyway uh the opportunity came up a friend of mine who went to the grammar school uh said that the teacher actually my old oboe teacher had come into their class and asked if anybody wanted to play the bassoon because they didn't have any in the music service and it was a resounding no by all the girls in that grammar school so she was telling me about this as if it was kind of some funny joke and I was like well hang on a second if they've got a space I'll do it so I wrote a letter to my old oboe teacher Lydia Dolby she still works in music she is like probably the the reason I, I started playing and I wrote this letter to her and said, I will take up the bassoon if there's a space. And and that was that. So she used to teach me. I used to go over to the grammar school, which was opposite my parents' house, uh, one evening each week and have lessons with her. Now, the interesting thing is that the head of that music service, knowing that I'd played the oboe and quit, said that I was under no circumstances was I to play the bassoon. And she told this teacher that. But the teacher was, I guess she remembered how kind of, how much I'd wanted to play the bassoon and kind of went against her anyway and got me an instrument and... And there we go. Oh, amazing. So when you quit the oboe, did you not do anything else music related? Only only like high school music. Yeah, but that was it. You were like, yeah. no, I can't do what I want. So sod you. Yeah, it was, it was that. It was a sod you, but it was also, you know, peer pressure and wanting to spend time with okay. my friends. And, you know, it was that, but it was a combination of just being a anarchy teenager as well. Okay, fair enough. So you started this, um, what I assume was a love affair with the bassoon <laughs> i love hate affair i'd say yeah. okay <laughs> tell me what happened with that so that you were 16 17 yeah so after that i went to so i had no idea you could be a professional musician i didn't know that that was a job and i went to a summer school at the royal college and i just had this life-changing experience it was the first time i'd come down to london i'd done it by myself dad saw me off on the train at liverpool on one end uh went down to this summer school and just had the most amazing time. And I remember thinking it was the thing that, you know, it was around the time when you're under a lot of pressure in school to decide what you want to do, kind of higher education or all of these kinds of things. I remember thinking at the time, wow, you can do this as a job. This is the only thing I can think that I could do every single day, all day and not get bored of it. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try and be a, a classical musician. I remember. How co- did you catch up? Sorry, just um, interested. How did you catch up with like the musicianship side? And well, I, that, I mean, academic, like the academic side of musicianship. Uh, like, so I, I took up the bassoon. I did my grade five. I think it was in five months, uh, and then I did my grade eight within about a year. Wow. Um, but it was partly because, like. Whenever an examiner uh, examiner sees a bassoon walking into the room, they like 
have a meltdown because they never see them anyway. So okay. I think they, well, maybe back then, maybe not now, but they were certainly kind of more lenient towards bassoonists. But also, that's not to do myself an injustice. There were no bassoonists around and I just loved practicing. So I was thrust into everything, like every ensemble that the, uh, the okay. that was going on. But I also did, I mean, I used to get up at 7am, or no, before 7am, I used to get into college for 7am, sixth form college, and I'd do like an hour and a half practice before the day started. And then I'd stay at the end of the day as well. And I, it was also because I had six brothers and sisters, so our house was like just very, very busy and I couldn't really practice at home anyway. And it was just a way for me to get out and have a bit of space and time to, to myself. So it was kind of very serendipitous. All these things just happened that enabled me to forge a path. Um, and academically, I was saying I'd, I'd never found that side of it. I mean, I like up to like grade five theory. It was all very logical. I had a quite a, a mathematical brain, so it was all very logical to kind of do that side of it as well. Um, I mean, I, I then very soon on went to junior RNCM for like my last year of school. That was when I felt like I was miles behind everybody else who'd been doing it years. I mean, miles. I, I, I mean, I thought there was no chance I, that I was going to be able to be a professional musician seeing and hearing what everybody else could do. Okay, so let's just go back a bit. So you went to um, Royal College summer school, what, when you were, did you say 17? Yeah, I think I was, yeah, 17. That sort 16, of between, 17, yeah. Yeah, sort of sixth form time. Yeah. So what was it that you saw there or experienced there that sort of inspired you particularly? Massively, it was the group of people I met. So, mm. you know, I grew up on the world, they call it the insular peninsula. Um, so without that much external influence apart from being in the Merseyside Youth Orchestra which was in Liverpool it was meeting all these other people musicians who did various things there were some classical musicians some kind of rappers uh, a couple of people who did other kind of trad music all these other musicians my age and just we had this real affinity and this connection um, and that was like the first I was that was the first time I'd experienced that and that was the first time I'd experienced it, I guess, experienced it through music. It really, it just really opened my eyes to just, there's a bigger world out there than what I know. And playing music as well, I just, I always loved just playing music, just making music and being part of something bigger. We worked with students at the Royal College as well. And they were all so encouraging and just telling me about their journeys and just... I mean, I, I remember meeting one bassoonist in particular who was at the college at the time, Fiona Troon, her name was. And she was just, I think she just saw in me how how much passion I had for it. And she was like, look, if you don't think of yourself as being behind everybody, if you know, because at the time when you're a kid, like grade eight is like the pinnacle that you need to pick. Yeah. pick. And she was like once you get out into the world it just doesn't matter yeah. if you want to do it go for it and I remember we had like a little book to sign at the end of it and you know we got everybody you know like when you leave school and stuff we got everybody to sign on it still to this day I remember what she said uh in that book I've got it somewhere but she just said practice hard and stay humble and that's stuck with me ever ever since like that's incredible isn't it to have that inspiration from somebody who's not far away from your age, mm. like that, I think there is something really powerful in that. Yeah. Young adults, kids seeing people who are not far away, but give them that inspiration. And they just build that bridge as well, you know, that bridge to from it being an idea in your mind to you seeing a, a reality, a path. 
And I think the massive thing for me is I, I was a very headstrong kid. So what I always saw was the path to what I want to do. And, you know, I could see the many, many obstacles, but I just thought I'm going for this. This is the path I'm going. It doesn't matter what I'm going to go down. This is where I'm going. I mean, I do know anyway, but I'm already getting a sense from what you're saying in terms of, you know, then you went in at that sort of sixth form age then to do all that practice. I mean, that is pretty focused at, at that age. Yeah, it is. But it wasn't out of uh, any kind of academic commitment to it. It was because I just loved it. I, it was that right. moment for me being in a practice room by myself to switch off the noise of the world and being in a big family and to just work on something. And so I do a lot of illustration now. Practice for me at the now is a very different thing. It's for work, so it, it means something slightly different. But I do a lot of illustration now. And when I illustrate, when I draw, it's like a, a meditation for me. And that's what practice was for me then as well. It was something that switched off all of this outside noise and just allowed me to kind of switch off even from myself and focus on this one thing. So then you got into junior RNCM. I'd say at that point there were three really influential people. So there was Lydia Dolby, my first over teacher, who took this chance on me and let me start. My music teacher at the time, Victoria Wells, who I'm still in touch with now, she was absolutely brilliant. She kind of pulled me up to the level of, okay, if you want to do music, these are the things you need to know. Um, And she was just a wonderful, wonderful, passionate teacher. When I got into junior RNCM, I mean, it was at the time, it cost more to be a junior at the RNCM than it did to study. So uh, the degree was, I think, £1,500 a year when I went. But to study as a junior, it was £2,400. But even by today's standards, it's it's a lot of money. And uh, obviously, I couldn't afford it. So um, she sorted out this bursary for me to be able to attend so she was the next person that was hugely influential and then the the you'll know karen humphreys from junior rnsm i mean if it wasn't for her so even though i'd got to this far and i got to junior rnsm and saw oh god i see what the gap is between what i need to be able to do and what i can do and i remember karen it was the time i'd not been in junior school very long and she was like are you going to apply to, to come to senior RNCM? And I was like, mm. yeah, yeah, okay. And I just had zero belief that I could get in. So it was just a, yeah, okay, just get off my back kind of thing. Um, and in my head, I was like, I- I'll just take a year out, you know, I'll get there. It's just going to take me a bit longer. And every week she would come to me and she said, have you done your application? And every week <laughs> I would say the same thing. And it got to, God, it was about four months after the applications had gone in. And she said to me, have you done your application yet? And I said, no. And she grabbed me by the arm, marched me up to her office and she sat me down. She said, right, fill in this application. Then we're going to take it over to uh, the head of WBP, Room Brass and Percussion at the time, who was Jim Gawley. She said, you're going to hand it to him and you're going to apologise that it's late. So she made me do that. uh, And then um, I got my audition and I I did my audition and (laughs) I remember... So it, this is just just kind of proves that I was my playing was decent enough. And actually, when I got to college, I saw that my playing wasn't far off a lot of other people. You just kind of get in your own head about it. But I remember doing the oral bit, and I had very little oral training. And uh, he said to me, "Is this a major, minor, or diminished chord?" And I said, "Is it minor?" And he went, "But you meant diminished, didn't you?" And I was like, "Yes, that's what I meant." <laughs> um, so you know, I was just uh, for all of the adversity that meant that I shouldn't have got in and shouldn't have gone down this path. There were many, many people who removed 
those roadblocks for me, who saw something in me. And I can look back and see what it was myself. I just had this, I don't know where it come from, but this passion for music that people had spotted and said, let's help clear this path and make a way for me to, you know. To get there. That's a really lovely story, isn't it? Because um, actually kids who aren't born into a music world and with parents who are aware or with people who are aware yet that is what you need i think you still probably perhaps even more so today yeah, definitely you need more people, so yeah you need people who are going to pick up these kids who don't know the paths through and and perhaps the right people i don't know um who go no we've you've got something you've got something and the and we're gonna have to i can see we're gonna have to force you through like karen having to grab you and actually make you do it but because you at that time didn't have the self-belief to go oh yeah i can do yeah this, it's, or- it's self-belief and it's also just i think you know at getting to junior school as well this is a world that people had inhabited that a lot of the other juniors had inhabited you know either all their lives or from very young ages this was a world that was completely unfamiliar to me so you always have trepidations about forging a path that you don't know you can go down and I think and it brings me to how we first met actually Michelle as well which is when I think in my third year for our God, it's that long ago, I can't remember now. But it, one element of our degree was... Was it experiential, optional? Something or like some, that, some kind of... Like where it was very open and you could do whatever you like. And now tell me if you remember this the same as me, but I, when we said we could do whatever we like, I had in my head that this summer school experience for me was transformational. And I wanted to be able to provide the same for other young people. I mean, it literally it changed my life. This is how I remember. I came to you and I said, what do you reckon? Can we have a crack at doing a summer school? And you were like, yeah. And then you basically organised everything else, you know. That did happen. And it just happened that the stars were aligned yeah. because uh, there was, at the time, I was doing work with AIM Higher, which was the Labour government's uh, initiative to get 50% of uh, 18 to 30 year olds into higher education and they had funding at that time to do it and it was just you came with a can we do it I'd heard about the fund and it was just like right let's get this sorted yeah but you know what I look back on of everything that's happened I look back on my time in college and that's one of the things I'm most proud of because I know two people now who attended that summer school one of whom is a incredible music teacher and the other one has just had commissions from the Royal Philharmonic Society you know I I don't know how transformational it was for them but to see them come out as well and to know that this summer school played however small a part in their musical life but to see them now flourishing in the profession as well is like it's the ultimate thing that you can achieve to pass on opportunities to other young people and, and 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 pave a way in the way that you know, it was for me as well. Yeah, I totally agree. And there's something about um, empowering people to be the people they're meant to be. And if you can help somebody along the way with that and I think with those summer schools what we did we showed people an environment that they didn't necessarily know about we made people feel very at home in that environment there was a great team of students which you headed up which were with them 24-7 the whole time they were there and it is that thing of showing them what's possible and like it's so important that those people are in our industry that have perhaps gone a different route to the traditional you know I'm I'm Gobby and I'll say what's wrong. Um, 
But for all its flaws, I think the industry is recognising that a little bit more now, uh, which is good because it's helping to make a space for those people where it certainly hadn't before. I don't think it did when I went into music. You had to have just a level of resilience. Everyone has to have resilience as a classical musician. You have to deal with rejection. But to move slightly into that area, you know, you had to have a particular additional level of resilience for the we don't see many of you in here in music, you know. Just explain that to me. So (laughs) here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, well, to be quite blunt, you know, when I was at college, I was one of maybe four or five black students when I was there, uh, working class. In fact, I remember, you know, um, sitting on the stairs with a horn player in my ear, Lindsay, who was from Leicester. I had a much more Scouse accent back then. Um, I've refined it for the radio. (laughs) Actually, that's, I mean, that's actually part of it. When I got to college, I toned down my accent an awful lot because everybody else was from these middle-class, better-spoken families than me. And I felt like my accent made me feel less than. And I remember sitting on the stairs with this horn player, Lindsay, and it was the first term and we very drunkenly, I mean, we'd had a lot of scuba fish bowls at this point, but um, we were oh. sat on, and yeah, magic. <laughs> scuba fish bowl. Anyone who went to the Royal Northern College You'll of Music know, yeah. will know exactly what we're talking about. Um, and we were sat on the stairs and we were both like, maybe we need to leave because this isn't our kind of place, you know. Um, this isn't somewhere people like us go. And fair play to us, we both survived we both made it through to fourth year but there weren't many people that looked like me and there weren't many people that sounded like me this is a story I always 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 tell so I apologize if you have heard this before but I remember being eight years old uh, when I played the oboe and being transfixed by the proms and watching the proms and three nights in a row watching this amazing music and really just used to fascinate me or how all these different instruments made different sounds and played together and I remember going to my mum on like the third night and saying maybe I shouldn't play the oboe anymore she was like why the bloody hell not and I was like well there aren't any black people who play the oboe there aren't any black people in any who play any instruments and she was like well you bloody make sure you're the first and that sticks with me because as an eight-year-old who had no concept of inclusion and no concept of diversity and all these things we talk about now. As an eight-year-old, I couldn't see myself in that position. And I was just lucky that I was quite stubborn and headstrong and was going to do what I was going to do. But for many people, that's, you know, that's not the case. You can't be what you can't see. And so, yeah, that is the world of classical music that I inherited, I think. And to go back to what I said, I think it's being recognised now. It is. It's a good point because... I follow um, the work that you do and it's really important work that you do. Tell me what you do as an individual to support that change in classical music world. I think the first thing is I joined the the Musicians' Union and what that did for me was it was just a massive eye-opener. Well, actually, no, but even before that, I joined Chinookay Orchestra, which is an orchestra made up of majority black and um, ethnically diverse musicians. And I remember when uh, the founder, Chichi, messaged me and asked if I'd like to join this orchestra. And I thought to myself, oh, yeah, OK, I, you know, work's work at this point. I'll, I'll do it. But um, I, I remember thinking to myself, mm, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to be part of a problem. I don't want to cause trouble. Oh, interesting. Because as musicians, we're told our work is, especially as freelancers, you're at the 
You're at it's, the mercy. Yes, of, thank you. Of, of the of the people who are paying exactly. the wages. And so you don't want to stick your head above the parapet. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I joined this orchestra. And I remember the first day I walked in and it was such a... It's like there's two moments in my life. When I first went to move to Manchester and got on a bus and saw a majority of black people on the bus, I noticed. I noticed as a black person. Yeah. I noticed. And I remember walking into this room, the second time I was walking into this room and seeing all black people in all the seats in the orchestra. I mean, it does something to you. And it does something to you that I don't think many white people in this country ever experience. Walking into a room and being the minority. It's something that as black people, we normalise. It becomes part of our everyday because that is just how it is. I remember taking my best friend to Jamaica, uh, which is where my family's from, and she said, like, there was this weird feeling. She constantly noticed being the minority everywhere she went. So it was that, it was this all of a sudden flip of suddenly being part of the majority. And then speaking to so many other people who have been through classical music and hearing all of their experiences and how they resonate and understanding that actually this is not okay. I shouldn't be told this and I shouldn't be spoken to this and I shouldn't have these external pressures that I now recognise are, are there. And and so and that was the, kind of the first step. And then I got involved through, I guess, being in Chinook with the Musicians Union. And I joined the Equalities Committee. And that was the biggest eye-opener for me. So, you know, first being... Because you've got to remember, before Chinook, I'd never been in a room with majority black people. And if you had, you don't share your experiences because you don't want to be the troublemaker. All of a sudden, it's this amazing safe space. And then I joined the Equalities Committee and I start to hear the experiences that, I mean what blew my mind some of the experiences that women have had to deal with in the industry and people with disabilities disabled people being part of the lgbtq uh, spectrum myself as well like all of these other experiences and i'm like oh my god there's there's actually so much that we are just having to deal with just to just to operate within this industry that could be and should be so much better and half the problem is we just don't have these conversations. We don't open it up. We just don't talk about it. There's a real sense, and, and, and you did mention that it, it's changing, and that is the sense I'm getting, and doing these podcasts is the sense I'm getting. But I think this idea of uncomfortable conversations and admitting where we've done things badly and wrongly it is still something that isn't happening in the mainstream that it's sort of glossed over and and I know people like you are having those conversations and it is coming to the fore but until everybody takes responsibility for the wrongdoings that have taken place for those who are othered if you like I just think things won't change properly. It's, It's difficult because I think in no other art form do we regenerate the work of the past. And so almost when you come to a lot of other art forms, you are granted a clean slate. Whereas with classical music, we begun in a certain way and on a particular trajectory, and we've never really adjusted from that trajectory. Mm -hmm. And the belief has been, if it isn't broken, don't fix it. But actually, when you look at classical music within wider society, you see... The Wirral's a very, we call the insular peninsula. Classical music is massively insular as well. I mean, even to the point where I talk to friends uh, who are outside of classical music and tell them 
you know, especially other activists who are outside of classical music. And I tell them some of the stuff that I've had to deal with or that I hear that other people have to deal with. And they're like, are you kidding me? If this stuff came out into the open and was paid as much attention to as other things, it would be shot down immediately. But because classical music is so insular and because we operate within this sphere, which is like, as I've explained from my upbringing and um, way into it, it's quite impenetrable. A lot of these things have been allowed to perpetuate. And on the back of what you were saying, those conversations haven't been had. And those conversations are uncomfortable conversations. And those are things that we do need to like, we need to look at and we need to address. And it's not just about let's bring classical music into the 21st century and open it up to more people. It's actually, you know, it's to do with the mental health of the people who are in that industry. And it's to, it's to know that, you know, specifically with hierarchies and hero worship and what's happened as a consequence of within this insular world, it's to open that up and say, actually, it's not okay for this to be happening and it's not okay for this person to gatekeep and it's not okay for for you to be treated like that. And now, because these conversations are being had, it affords us a way to look at it pragmatically and tackle it. Yeah, and you're chair now, aren't you, of the uh, Equality, Diversity, Inclusion Committee? At yeah, Musician so this Union. is my second term, yeah. And uh, and I've I mean I've noticed things changing and conversations being had um, yeah. and uh, you know I've particularly noticed stuff of women and their kind of rights around well, you know, all d- sorts of things. One of the things that it's it's been brilliant for me for is obviously my way in was through being gay and being black. So they're my lived experiences. Now whenever we do conferences and there are breakout spaces, I always try and make sure I go to the spaces that don't talk about me so one of the most life-changing uh seminars i went to was it was actually on new parents um so there were some men in there but it was a lot of women talking about their experiences and god some of the stuff that women who have given birth and people who have given birth have had to endure like i one woman told me that she was in the middle of a run of a show while pregnant had a horrific abortion and was expected to go back to work the next day sorry not abortion uh, a miscarriage miscarriage yeah and was expected to go back the next day and I was just like and and she was like I didn't tell anybody I just cracked on and I'm like can you imagine what it must be like because how she described it as well was she lost a child and she was in work the next day and I was like you know for all my faults I'm a male and uh, a cis male <laughs> And so I, I would never have that expectation. Uh, I've never had that recognition of, yeah. and I might, you know, I might, oh, you, you, you look a bit down today. Oh, it's okay. And in my head, it would just be like, oh, grand, okay, fine. You know, another person was telling me she uh, is an oboist and had to have an emergency cesarean. Three weeks later were these oboe auditions for a job. And she was like, I, I just can't play yet. Now, if, and she told me about an email exchange now, if I was a man in that job receiving that email, I'd just be like, oh, well, you've missed you've missed it. You know, it, it's all these things that we can't consider unless we understand that, that this is why lived experiences is, is, you know, it's a buzzword. We hear it so often, but this is why lived experiences are important, because we can't do a job that's fully inclusive if we don't at least have an inkling or people with an understanding of these complications. How do we make that better? How do we make that better? Well, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? I think conversations these conversations are just and being open to understanding how these things can affect us and how these things can affect other people um and how these things can affect people that have experiences 
that we wouldn't have. Yeah, and I guess part of the reason for this podcast is it's showing the real people behind the instruments, behind the voice, behind the whatever it might be. And I say in the beginning of the introduction to this podcast that for me, music is about the people. Mm. People are the conduits of the music. And if we don't have an understanding and a care for the people who are delivering the music, then actually well, I, the music to me doesn't live. I believe that in the sense of, I, you know, I'm a hardcore trade unionist as well. And I believe that for all jobs, like we are humans before we yeah. are people who do jobs. And that is what, and I honestly believe a happy workplace is going to be more productive and all of that. And in some ways we've foregone that for a long time in music and as i said we've continued on this trajectory which has left us in a space where there's a lot of expectation but not a lot of talking about the shit that happens yeah. backstage the stuff that happens when the performance is finished you know it's huge and you know mental health comes into that hugely as well like and it's so important that we dig deep and we get into these conversations and we talk about it and sometimes it's like a good therapy session sometimes those com- i hear so often oh those conversations are hard they're not hard you just have to go into them with humility mm-hmm. Because none of us are perfect, Mm. you know, none of us. We all do things and say things. But if we go into it with humility and know that it's a safe space and we're not going to get it right first time. But the point is that we're working towards getting something better, no matter what happens in that room. You know, it's like a, a therapy session that can be exhausting, but you feel so much better after it. Yeah, yeah. So um, what else are you currently doing? We kind of left um, you at Music College and then you went to Chinake and the Musicians' Union, but I know that you've done an awful lot more as well. So what does your life look like? Well, at the moment, I'm off with a broken finger. So at the moment, there's no playing. Um, But... Uh, the other thing that I do is broadcasting. A bit of shameless self-promotion here. I've got a podcast Please on Radio do. 3 called Classical Fix. Um, and again, it's funny, I was talking to somebody about um, how I kind of got to where I am and success and all of these kind of things, which I've always had a weird relationship, this idea of success. And it, she was asking me how I kind of got to do the presenting and, you know... And how I got to my level of inverted commas success. And I'm like, well, I think, and this is something I believe massively, life is 50% choice, 50% chance. Anybody who is who appears, and this is really important, who appears from the outside as successful, some of that success is hard work, some of that success is chance, and it was the same for me. What I will say about that is that the element that is chance with the choices you make you can align some of that chance you can make sure that you're in a place for that chance to happen and i think that's the important thing whilst you can't control the chances you can control the circumstances under which by the choices you make under which those chances come to be so for me the broadcasting often i get asked is how did i get into broadcasting and like most people it was by chance but the point was that when i left college i was doing loads of teaching and I felt like a massive failure because, and this is one of the things my book bears about music college, you are taught at music college that success is becoming a soloist or getting a job in an orchestra. And actually, there are so many incredible ways that people use their music degree and their musicianship um, 
and they are hugely successful. I don't want to see on any music colleges, uh, you know, the alumni list in the prospectus, all the people who are in jobs. I want to see the people as well. That is a success, you know, and that's what we go to aim towards as well. But I want to see the people who are doing amazing work in education. I want to see the people who have become incredible heads of department. I want to see people who are now heading up orchestras. I want to see that there is a huge range that you can do with this degree, A, but also there is a clear path if you want to play or be a player, but you can do so much with that. And that is success as well. I mean, I know so many freelancers who have incredible, incredible like jobs in the wider sense of the word, and they do so many different things. But we only ever hear about the people who get seats in an orchestra. And actually, there's so much more about that that needs to be celebrated. I could not agree more. I mean, I actually um, was, uh, I went and spoke to some first year music students recently. um, And I was alongside uh, someone who got a seat in an orchestra, very good orchestra. Which is amazing as well. Like that's not to take away from that. That is incredible. Absolutely not. And there was also somebody who had set up their own opera company and and also absolutely brilliant. The work he was doing was fabulous. However, I sort of, I did sit and say to them, when I was at college, the route was performing. And so by those standards, I was a failure. Um, and so because I went into arts... Well, by those standards, I'm up, still a failure. You know what I mean? And that's what yeah, lingers with yeah. me because I've, I've never got a job in a, in a band. And actually, to be quite honest with you, and a, a lot of freelancers I know now don't want jobs that's it and I, and I have had an interesting conversation about things that are now being looked at um, on music courses and conservatoires where it is about looking at different opportunities but I think that still prevails oh, the sure. idea that those who have made it onto the performance platform are the success stories also I think the ethos that's maybe not the right word but the the feeling in orchestras is slightly changed so you know I grew up with the, the Liverpool Philharmonic and it was the four principal players who'd been in their jobs for years. And, and now there are a lot of people who are in jobs who want more variation in their careers themselves. Some people do absolutely love being in a job and relishing having that job. And I think that's amazing. Some people aren't satisfied by that, by only playing in that one band. And, uh, and some people aren't satisfied by only doing, making music with their instruments. Some people want more. And I think that's becoming more common that people understand they have more of a choice than just being in a job and staying in it forever. But for me, when I came out of music college, that was it. I I came out and I was like, I'm doing loads of teaching, felt like a massive failure, wasn't doing enough playing. So I actually went back and studied in Germany a couple of years later and came back and then was doing much more playing after that year in Germany. Um, Still doing quite a bit of teaching. I was a good teacher, but I didn't love it. And that was my problem is like, because it didn't feel like success. I was an amazing teacher. Uh, not to blow my own trumpet, but I think I had a really good way of connecting with the kids and making music from my own way of doing it, making music accessible to them, fun, and not always, and, and certainly definitely not in this unattainable, you only do it if you're middle class. I had a way of making it accessible. And that was really important. So then I joined the union and was speaking at a lot of conferences. When I was speaking at the conferences, it wasn't, it was through passion. Like I spoke quite honestly about things through passion and I was was not scared to challenge people as well. I was not scared to challenge people who were in power because I had nothing to lose at that point. They weren't giving me anything. So I was, I was basically a gobshite. I was happy to, to challenge people. And it was that that got me noticed by... Um, a BBC producer, she came up to me and she said, would you like to come in uh, and do some uh, voice test type things? 
and and when I think back, and a lot of people ask me, like, where did you learn your skills for, for speaking on the radio? The public speaking came from the stuff I did with Union, but the relatability, if, the, if I have any, if I have any skill in, in broadcasting... You do. <laughs> it's, it's finding honest ways... It was finding honest ways to connect with kids. It was finding honest ways to make music accessible for kids. And then it just so happened that the, the show that I do, Classical Fix, came up, which was about talking about music in basically without the... I think the academics of music that Radio 3 does is brilliant. It's the only place that really does it. But also this idea of just talking about how music makes us feel. And that's a lot of what I did with the kids when I worked with them and worked in the classroom teaching classroom music. So uh, Classical Fix is the only classical music-related podcast or radio that I listen to. Um, <laughs> and the reason I do, it's not just to blow smoke up your bottom, um, and the reason that I do is because what you get is a such a refreshing view of classical music there isn't a language that they're having to or a script that they're having to follow they are giving you their gut feel about what the music does for them now that to me is relatable and i believe that all programming managers across the world should be listening to something like that because you're like this is what it does it's not about you know, what chord progressions and blah, 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 which just drives me nuts. Or no, and I know there is a place for that. But in terms of just music living and telling a story and touching the soul as I go on about, you know, the people who haven't had that classical training bring a knowledge that's just beautiful, I think. Well, this is exactly it, I think. Sometimes you get from people who don't have any preconceptions and don't bring them into the room with them. I also try and bring elements of everything else I do as well. So one of the things that I am quite hot on is that our, we don't have enough women composers. We don't have enough women in visible positions of power in classical music, massively. Women are massively underplayed composers. And it's nothing, and it's the same with composers of colour as well. It's nothing to do with quality, which is often what I'll hear back. So I, I try and use that in any small way to boost the visibility and so our our, um, our playlist is always gender balanced always if not in favour of women I was going to say you, I think you sway the other way don't you uh, uh, often more. we do often we we will have once or twice we'll have more men in a playlist but it really never we're very conscious that that's how we programme what are you hoping to change more of in the classical music industry I normally say in general but I feel you know you are quite an activist and so what are your what would you like to see right like personally or more broadly both both okay I I mean in a very narcissistic way uh, well again a little bit more backstory as well so a couple of years ago I we had like during the COVID year, actually, we had five deaths in the family. Uh, and death is always... This suddenly got very deep, hasn't it? That's okay. Death has always been something that is at the periphery for me. You know, I know we all go through it and it's the only thing in life that's sure, but it's all been, always been at the periphery. So all of a sudden we had this a lot of death to deal with in a very short amount of time, which really brought it into focus and... Again, this is a bit morbid, but kind of made me think about my own mortality and actually my own legacy. What am I leaving in the classical music world? Hopefully it won't be for a long time. Jesus, fingers crossed. <laughs> um, but what is it? What is the mark that I'm making on the classical music world? And I think that is something that's become 
more of a thought to me. I think I, I want classical music to be... A, I, I'm not one of these that has the thought that we need to make... Everybody needs to love classical music. It's a genre of music. We can't expect everybody to love it. And there are times, I'll be completely honest, when I find it boring as well. And so I totally get that. We can't expect everybody to engage. But what I want to do is, if there is a legacy that I leave, A, I would love to kind of leave something that propels the classical music world forward, especially with reference to my own instrument as well. But also that breaks down if there, if there are any barriers in place. What I want is a classical music where everyone can feel like they belong. If you choose to engage, great. If you don't, and that actually is what I want more broadly. So when I think politically, um, I, I want to lead with the most human part of me, if that makes sense. And I think about that with politics as well. I have to lead with my with my heart, as cheesy as that sounds. I, I want to lead with the human part of me, the part that connects to other people before I think about pragmatism. Yeah, everybody has slightly different common goals, but if we want things to endure and we want things to last, it's only through the human connections that we make that we can do that. Does that make sense? I've waffled a lot there. It makes complete sense. No, it makes complete sense. And I think what you're saying is, is then that has been a theme throughout our chat um, and something that I fully agree with, which is that idea that music is about humanity um, and that music really, in whatever form, can only live through those human connections. It is allowing classical music to have that human element all the time, which I think it hasn't had in the past necessarily. We're all precious about certain things. I certainly am, and I have my preconceptions, and I have my biases. But it's about being open to, just open to other experiences, being a human before anything else, and and what it means to be a human in any walk, whether that be like how we work, how we make music, how we converse, how we do politics. It's it, our humanity is the first thing that we have, and it's the it's the only thing that we're born with before anything else external gets to us and that's how we should be that's how I want to be concentrating and that's that's the legacy that I hope I'll leave in life and in classical music and um, I ask all my guests um, what advice would they give to their younger selves and I wonder if you've just answered that question but um, but I will ask it anyway okay uh, instead of advice I'm going to leave you with a quote by uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson I think um, and it's this is a speech that I did at Chet's a couple of weeks ago success is something I've struggled with for, for many reasons and we won't go into that but I found this quote about success which I absolutely adore because it puts a lot of things into perspective for me. So yeah, Ralph Waldo Emerson, he says, to laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affections of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty and to find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you've lived, this is to succeed. That is very beautiful. Linton, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to Thanks you. Thanks for having and me, Mish. deep. It's been great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Music Mavericks. A new episode will be landing on your podcast feed every week. So please listen, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It does help others find us. And don't forget to follow the pod on social media. On Insta, it's Music Maverick Pod and on Twitter, Music Maverick P. See you again 